It's the Mark Stein Show. And now, here's Mark. They all laughed at Christopher Columbus when they tore his statue down. They all laughed and tossed it in the lake to drown. Columbus Day weekend in America, Thanksgiving in Canada. If it all goes pear-shaped on November 3rd, this will be the last Columbus Day. With three and a half weeks to go, the polls show Joe Biden an average of about 10 points ahead. There is said to be a, quote, shy Trump vote, reluctant to tell strangers over the telephone or in writing on the Internet that they are Trump voters. On the other hand, if you ask the subsidiary question, who do you think your neighbours are voting for? 57% of Pennsylvanians, for example, think their neighbours are voting for Trump. So huge numbers of Biden voters at 23 Elm Street think everyone else in the street is voting for Trump. Odd, odd. Is there a shy Biden vote? New Hampshire is a swing state. Vermont, just over the river for me, is not. But as I tootle around, I see little evidence of enthusiasm for Biden in either. Just to be clear, there is one, just one Biden sign uh, outside the house of the local gay couple, as it happens. Uh, There are plenty of Trump signs and plenty of... uh, Uh, what one might call more subdued signs of Trump support, i.e. signs supporting Republican state rep and state Senate and other down-ballot candidates. Governor Sununu says Trump is going to win New Hampshire, and it kind of feels doable on the ground. And if Biden were running away with this thing, if he were really 16 points ahead, as CNN uh, new poll says, that would not be happening because... Uh, You reach a certain point at which so-called undecided voters decide they'd like to vote for the winner. Their averageness is so hardcore they want to do what everyone else is doing. Uh, You know that's true in other fields. It's why the Today Show tells you the biggest grossing weekend movies. Uh, So you have the information to make the same choices as everybody else. It's why Barnes & Noble has a table with the top 10 bestsellers at the front of the store so you can uh, save time and just buy the same books as everybody else. Um, And all other polls are commissioned to lead public opinion, not identified. If a poll commissioned by the Campaign for Climate Action Now finds that climate change is the number one issue for 67% of voters, well, that's why they commissioned the poll and framed the question as they did. So a professional pollster is someone who spends three years manipulating public opinion according to the needs of his client, but come election year, mysteriously transforms into a dispassionate, impartial statistician of the national mood. Uh, Then again... We have the facts of the past four years. The candidate of the incumbent party, Hillary Clinton, arranged for a quote-unquote former, former, unquote, high-ranking MI6 agent to get a Russian intelligence asset to compile an oppo research dossier on her political opponent. She then peddled it to the most powerful intelligence agencies on the planet as a pretext... Uh, for uh, 
a party con- a government controlled by her party to launch a surveillance operation on the other party. The heads of those agencies, aware that American surveillance tools are not supposed to be used uh, as political interference with the ruling party's opponents, outsourced much of the legwork Uh, to their foreign allies, again at the very highest level, to the point where a former Australian foreign minister, Alexander Downer, decides he has a sudden urge to have cocktails in London with a total nobody who just happens to work for the Trump campaign. Mr Downer's job at the time was Australian High Commissioner. That's to say he represents Her Majesty's Australian government to Her Majesty's government in the United Kingdom. Yet as Malcolm Turnbull, the head of that Australian government discloses in his recent autobiography, Mr. Downer reported on his night with George Papadopoulos, not to anybody in his own government, but directly to the Americans, i.e. to the US Embassy in London, whose station chief was Gina Haspel, uh, now the director of the CIA, and busily stonewalling the declassification of relevant documents relating Uh, to her time as station chief in London. Not that it matters, not that it matters, because the Department of Justice has announced that the Durham report, which the boobs and rubes have been panting for for years, uh, convinced that that's going to be the thing that finally nails these coup plotters. Uh, The Department of Justice, the Attorney General, has now announced that the, uh, the Durham report that the boobs and rubes have been panting for will not now be released before the election. So no one, none of the coup plotters, Brennan, Clapper, Comey, will be going to jail. But Michael Flynn, a man entrapped into misremembering, the crime of misremembering, in a non-case with no underlying crime at all, as the handwritten notes of senior figures confirm they knew at the time, even as they were briefing Obama and Biden on it, Michael Flynn continues to be tormented by a corrupt judge with the backing of a a decadent and politicised appellate court. Courts adjudicate controversies. That's what they're there for. No controversy, no court. You can't go to court without a controversy. Uh, And to have a controversy, you have to have two parties. There has to be a plaintiff and a defendant. It takes two to tango, litigation-wise. If there is no plaintiff uh, or no prosecutor in a criminal case, there is no controversy. That's the situation here. The Department of Justice has withdrawn its case and declines to prosecute it, but an evil man, Judge Emmett Sullivan, has decided that this no longer existing case, this non-controversy, cannot be dismissed because uh, he reserves the right to torment Michael Flynn into an early grave. Uh, Why am I bringing all this stuff up? Most Americans couldn't tell you anything about this. Most Americans have never heard of these people. Insofar as they have heard of them, Uh, Half the country thinks that uh, Trump and Papadopoulos and Flynn are agents of Putin. This is shameless corruption and coup-making by the most powerful forces in America. And what they did last time uh, tells you uh, why they're not going to let it go this time. 
uh, as I said, the most powerful forces in America, along with major foreign allies and prominent media figures, have all participated in this knowingly, knowingly. Uh, that's what they did last time, and they paid no price. This time round, they've been laying the ground for chaos well in advance. So uh, would you like to put out a tweet about some of this stuff, about what a stinker Judge uh, Sullivan is, or why Gina Haspel is uh, stonewalling on the declassification of documents? Good, good luck with that. Because Twitter's coincidentally just... Uh, uh, three and a half weeks before the election, Twitter has just changed the rules so your tweet can be marked as fake news and hidden under several layers of complexity in terms of accessing it, and it won't go viral. We are in a blizzard of lies in which the truth, or uh, to be uh, impartial about this, any narrative opposed to the blizzard of lies uh, has to be additionally suppressed by so-called social media. And in that blizzard of lies, the idea that somehow as the winds swirl all around the Presidential Debate Commission, which sounds so respectable, and all the people on it, like Olympia Snow and John Danforth are so respectable. The, but the idea, nevertheless, that in this blizzard of lies, uh, the Presidential Debate Con Commission uh, is the last bastion of truth and integrity and impartiality in an almost wholly corrupted public sphere seems a wee bit improbable. If James Comey is willing to sign off on FISA court warrants, he knows a bollocks. If Gina Haspel is willing to stonewall on CIA MI6 shenanigans in London, she knows they should never have been getting up to. If Emmett Sullivan insists on keeping a court case going, even though there is no prosecuting party to prosecute it, is it really such a stretch to believe that the same dark, corrupted motives uh, drove the decision of an oh-so-respectable presidential debate commission within hours of Mike Pence's victory to announce that they're unilaterally changing the rules? People bandy the expression, banana republic. Uh, which traditionally we understand as a system in which the state and the ruling party have merged and the organs of the state serve exclusively the interests of the ruling party. Uh, but we call them banana republics because uh, they uh, originated in ramshackle dumps on the fringes of the map, uh, the sort of places where the uh, local strongman's definition of a relatively free press is a free press run by his relatives. I think that's Tom Stoppard's old joke. Um, it's one thing when that happens in Liberia or Colombia. It's a different matter when the most powerful state on earth does it. Outrunning the NSA is a lot more difficult than outrunning Venezuela's secret police. These are terrible thoughts to have to entertain about a long-settled free society. Uh, but this is not Italy or Austria or Hungary. As I've said on Tucker and Rush, the elites have learned their lesson from 2016. They're not going to waste their time with subtle coup plots and, uh, and, and uh, 
cleverly devised Ukrainian phone call impeachments, it's easier just to ensure that Trump nor anything like him ever happens again. The best way to obstruct what they're planning for you is a big enough victory on Tuesday night that cannot be undone by morning after machinations. Trump has to win beyond the margin of lawyer, beyond the margin of mail-ins, beyond the margin of deep state election theft. Oh, a bit of business before we move on. Tuesday morning in Australia, I'll be uh, talking about the state of freedom in a lockdown world with the great John Roscombe of the IPA in Melbourne. It's live at 1 a.m., Greenwich Mean Time. That means 9 a.m. Tuesday in Perth, midday Tuesday in Sydney, and for those of you in between, sometime in between. On this side of the planet, it's 9 p.m. Monday, North American Eastern Time. You have to be a member of the IPA to participate, but that's a bit of a bargain. Only 10 bucks if you're 25 or under. Somewhat steeper if the ravages of middle age have eaten into the crevasses of your flesh. But I do hope you'll join us. It's Tuesday morning in Australia, uh, 9pm North American Eastern Time, if you're calculating uh, from the uh, northern or uh, western... Wait a minute, where's... Yeah, that's right. Northern and western hemispheres. I do hope you'll join us. Mark Stein's Poem of the Week. Well, if this is the last Columbus Day, we surely should have a poem for poor old Columbus. And one that begins other than in 1492. So, a little Ogden Nash goes a very long way with me, and I would rather have his lovely Shakespeare-derived lyric to Kurt Wilde's speak low than his entire uh, catalogue of non-musicalised verse. But he was a, a hugely popular versifier of the mid-20th century in America. He liked rhymes. He especially liked contrived rhymes of invented words, which is cheating a little bit, uh, especially on the scale Mr. Nash did it. Listen out here for Burdenand. Uh, and in order to work up to his rhyme, he issued meter and had lines that were as short or as long as he needed to get up to the rhyme. Um, but given the centrality of uh, Christopher Columbus to the American identity, it was inevitable that one day Ogden Nash would have something to say on the subject. Once upon a time there was an Italian, and some people thought he was a rapscallion. But he wasn't offended, because other people thought he was splendid. And he said the world was round, and everybody made an uncomplimentary sound. But he went and tried to borrow some money from Ferdinand, but Ferdinand said America was a bird in the bush, and he'd rather have a bird in hand. But Columbus's brain was fertile, it wasn't arid, and he remembered that Ferdinand was married. And he thought there is no wife like a misunderstood one, because if her husband thinks something is a terrible idea, she is bound to think it a good one. So he perfumed his handkerchief with bay rum and citronella, and he went to see Isabella. And he looked wonderful, but he had never felt sillier. And she said, I can't place the face, but the aroma is familiar. And Columbus didn't say a word. All he said was, I am Columbus, the 15th century Admiral Byrd. And just as he thought her disposition was very malleable, 
and she said, here are my jewels, and she wasn't penurious like Cornelia, the mother of the Gracchi. She wasn't referring to her children, no, she was referring to her jewels, which were very, very valuable. So Columbus said, somebody show me the sunset, and somebody did, and he set sail for it, and he discovered America, and they put him in jail for it. And the fetters gave him welts, and they named America after someone else. So the sad fate of Columbus ought to be pointed out to every child and every voter, because it has a very important moral, which is, don't be a discoverer, be a promoter. Ogden Nash on Christopher Columbus. But on this uh, grim Columbus Day, with America's civilizational inheritance being tossed into the dumpster of history, I don't want to leave it at uh, mere ostentatiously rhymed shtick. If you saw me with Nigel Farage, Louise Arbour and Simon Sharma at the Monk Debate, you'll know that I'm not a big fan of Emma Lazarus and that lousy poem of hers that they stapled to the foot of the Statue of Liberty. As I put it on stage, the French gave America a great Statue of Liberty and the Americans turned it into a crappy statue of mass immigration. Uh, So to hell uh, with your huddled masses yearning to breathe free. If you're yearning that badly, throw off your own local tyranny and breathe free at home. Uh, However, that is not the only poem Emma Lazarus wrote. And uh, this one uh, discerns one of the central facts about the year Columbus sailed the ocean blue. 1492 is one of those hinge moments of history because, uh, from uh, my point of view, it's the border between the Middle Ages and modernity. On the other hand, if you recall the late Osama bin Laden... You'll remember that a couple of weeks after 9-11, he said it was payback for, quote, the tragedy of Andalusia, by which he means the fall of Islamic Spain in 1492 and the expulsion of all Muslims from the Iberian Peninsula. Uh, They weren't the only ones expelled. Uh, The Jews who declined to convert were also kicked out. And thus, for Emma Lazarus, the peculiar contradictions of 1492. As one door closes, another one opens. Thou two-faced year, mother of change and fate, didst weep when Spain cast forth with flaming sword the children of the prophets of the Lord, prince, priest, and people, spurned by zealot hate. Hounded from sea to sea, from state to state, the West refused them and the East abhorred. No anchorage the known world could afford. Close locked was every port, barred every gate. Then smiling, thou unveilst, O two-faced year, a virgin world where doors of sunset part, saying, Ho, all who weary, enter here. There falls each ancient barrier that the art of race or creed or rank devised to rear grim bulwarked hatred between heart and heart. Emma Lazarus on 1492 A two-faced year that unveiled a virgin world, saying, All who weary, enter here. 
Columbus's naysayers, like the uh, latter open borders sentiment, while denying, of course, the first part, that it was a virgin world at all. Can't get enough of America's undocumented anchorman? SteinOnline.com is your one-stop shop for all things Stein. Catch new episodes of The Mark Stein Show. Sit back and experience features like Stein's Song of the Week and Mark Stein's Tales for Our Time. Get the most of Stein Online by joining the Mark Stein Club, a global community of people just like you. The show never stops for members of the Mark Stein Club. Head on over to steinonline.com club for details. The Mark Stein Club presents The Hundred Years Ago Show. A Greek king's Trojan monkey, the death of an emirate, and the bright lights of the Great White Airway landing field. It's October 1920. A hundred years from today. Your world news update, the messy aftermath of the Great War continues in the Latvian capital of Riga. Soviet Russia and Poland have signed an armistice to bring an end to the Polish-Soviet war in the Polish city of Suwalki. Poland and Lithuania have signed an agreement to end the Polish-Lithuanian War. After Soviet submarines were seen in the Baltic, the British Foreign Secretary, Lord Curzon, has warned his Bolshevik counterpart, Georgi Chicherin, that the next time any such vessels are spotted in those waters, the Royal Navy will attack them on sight. The world's biggest ocean liner is supposedly the Hamburg-America line steamer SS Bismarck. Uh, The ship was launched in 1914, but completion was delayed by the recent World War. Under the Treaty of Versailles, it is required to be turned over to British control as part of German war reparations. Now, still at the Hamburg shipyard, it has been badly damaged by fire. Post-Habsburg Austria is finally here since the not-quite-abdication of Emperor Karl and the collapse of the empire. The rulers of so-called German Austria have indicated that they wish to join their fellow Germans in the new German Republic on the grounds that without the Habsburg monarchy, there is no such thing as Austria or Austrian identity. The Treaty of Saint-Germain killed that dream and expressly forbade Austria from merging with with Germany or any other state. So now a new constitution has been promulgated declaring the rump Austria a federal republic with a bicameral legislature that will elect to a four-year term a man who will bear a title unthinkable just a few years ago, President of Austria. The ancient emirate of Bukhara came to a humiliating end last month with the invasion of the Red Army, the destruction of its great fortress, the Ark of Bukhara, and the toppling of its ruler, Alim Khan. Now a new nation has been proclaimed in the rubble, the Bukharan People's Soviet Republic. Dabba, 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 dabba
All day long, happy and gay, chattering away, singing and swinging, but it's a jungle out there. And the law of the jungle applies even in the grounds of a royal palace. King Alexander of Greece was walking with his dog Fritz through the grounds of the Tatoi Palace, the royal family's summer residence, when a Barbary macaca monkey came swinging through and attacked the dog. While trying to rescue Fritz, his majesty was pounced on by a second macaca and suffered a deep bite from the monkey. We shall monitor the situation. The king's wound is said to be serious. In the United States, a mob of 50 men in McClenny, Florida, near Jacksonville, went to the Baker County Jail, overpowered the sheriff, and removed three Negroes who had been arrested for the killing of a white farmer. Rayfield Gibbons, Ben Gibbons and Fulton Smith were taken to the edge of town, tied to trees and shot. Another coloured man unconnected to the murder, Sam Duncan, has also been killed. 1920 has been a census year in America and here's the official result. The 48 states of the Union now have a combined population of 105 million 683,108 people. That's a lot of Americans. We all know you can land an airplane in the day, but in the middle of the night? Well, at the stroke of midnight at Roosevelt Field at Mineola on Long Island, a plane equipped with powerful arc lights, bright enough to illuminate the landing strip, put down safely. Arc lights are thought to be a fire hazard, but even with the metal ablaze, the plane did not catch fire at all. This is thought to be the biggest breakthrough in aviation since the armistice and opens up the possibility of regular night flights. On the very same day, the United States Navy unveiled its new magnetized Ambrose Channel Pilot Cable Navigational Aid by guiding the destroyer USS Sims through the narrows of New York Harbor using instruments only. This will enable ships to sail into New York during heavy fog rather than having to wait offshore for the fog to lift. Another transportation breakthrough. For the first time in eight years, a passenger train from Mexico has been permitted to enter the United States. As President-elect General Obregón crossed the border into Texas to visit El Paso. He was met at the station by the mayor and then driven to the Hotel Paso del Norte. 
Uh, for the first time in decades, New Yorkers were not required by law to move on the city's so-called moving day. Last October 1st, 1919, an estimated 75,000 New York families moved from their existing apartments to new ones. This October the 1st, it was only 5,000. And over 90% of families elected to stay put in their old homes. In sports news, the French have inaugurated a a new thoroughbred horse race intended to be the most prestigious in Europe and perhaps the world. The Prix de l'Arc de Triomphe is named after the famous monument in Paris through which the triumphant allies marched just last year in their World War Victory Parade. At the Longchamp Racecourse, victory in this first race went to Comrade, a three-year-old colt ridden by Frank Bullock and owned by the Comte Evremont de Saint-Dallery. Monsieur le Comte paid just 26 guineas for Comrade. So that prize money of 150,000 francs is quite a return on investment. In baseball, the Cleveland Indians' 10-1 win over the Detroit Tigers means they'll finish at least one game ahead of the Chicago White Sox. And thus it has clinched them, the American League pennant. The White Sox, of course, of various off-field distractions, having lost several of their star players in the World Series bribery scandal. Take me out to the ball games, plural. Do you like a good old Major League triple header? Three nine-innings games on the same day in Pittsburgh as the Reds defeated the Pirates 13-4 and 7-3 in the first two games. Notwithstanding their 6-0 loss in the third game, the Reds are now in third place for the National League pennant. In Leipzig, the German strongman Hermann Goerner has set a new world record for the most weight lifted with one hand. Herr Goerner picked up a bar weighing 330 kilograms. That's 730 pounds. The American playwright and actor William Young has died at Lake Sunapee in New Hampshire. His celebrated stage version of Ben-Hur opened on Broadway in 1899, toured around the world, and after two decades, ended its run just six months ago, having made its creator a very wealthy man. On the very same day as Mr. Young's death, the great composer Max Bruch took his leave in Berlin. For many of his 82 years, he was known primarily as a choral composer. But it is this first violin concerto that has established itself in the repertoire and seems likely to be his most enduring legacy.
And that's The Way of the World, October 1920. A hundred years from today. A hundred years from today. Oh, you know what this music means. Mark's mailbox is on the air. Diane Oliver, a first weekend founding member from beautiful East Anglia in the United Kingdom, writes, uh, Hi, Mark. Great show. I know you're not a conspiracy theorist, but are you beginning to think this isn't any longer about a virus, which we now know is no more lethal than seasonal flu? I would agree that it's about keeping Trump out, but it's going on all over the West. I would love to think it's incompetence, but there are just too many whys. Why mandatory masking when the virus was virtually gone? And not back in March when they might have done some good. Why won't Boris in particular not listen to the many experts who have been saying we're on the wrong path? We keep being told this is the new normal. Why? I think they're using this to push through the climate agenda. How clean the air is now. We can't go back to before. It certainly fits with Agenda 2130. Uh, Looked at through this lens, it all makes far more sense. Crashing the Western economies is all part of it. Indeed, Diane, as you say, I'm sceptical of conspiracies, although, as I outlined earlier in this show, I believe the allegation of foreign interference in the 2016 presidential election is, in fact, a cover for far more serious domestic interference in the 2016 presidential election. So uh, when the facts support a conspiracy, I believe in a conspiracy. But generally speaking, you know, why is Western civilization collapsing? Is it because a tight cabal of globalists in Davos is plotting it? Or is it because we're all soft, decadent, passive, self-absorbed ninnies who can't be bothered to breed and think the height of human purpose is to sit around listening to some untalented caterwauler's latest dirge on our exciting new Chinese-made smartphone that's a real breakthrough because it's a sixteenth of an inch narrower than last year's crappy Chinese smartphone. The salient point on the COVID is that if this was a deliberately created virus, what exactly would Chairman Xi have done differently? Nothing. It's better than SARS because SARS kills you too quickly. This sits in the virological sweet spot. You can be infected and asymptomatic and walking it around infecting others uh, for two weeks. So if this was a manufactured virus, that's one of the improvements you would have made on SARS. Um, And second, in terms of deaths, it's afflicted the Western world the worst. It hasn't in the least afflicted, for example, Chinese client states in Africa. Is that deliberate, either by the Chinese or by the leaders of Western nations, who, whether they're nominally left of centre or right of centre, have, with the exception of Sweden, all reacted exactly the same to it? Or is it just because the Chinese, who give a lot of thought to punishing their enemies, understand our vulnerabilities a lot better than we do? As I said... 
That's the virological sweet spot. Oh, you can test positive and be asymptomatic for two weeks. Uh, so if you test positive on October the 2nd, I'm afraid we can't go ahead with that presidential debate on October the 15th. And what that means is there's always an incoming wave, just a fortnight away. Oh, yes, this second, third, fourth wave just lapped around your ankles. But see those white caps on the far horizon? That's the fifth, sixth, seventh wave just two weeks away. And that's not just a virological sweet spot, that's also a totalitarian sweet spot, an unseen menace that never quite overwhelms you, but oh, 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 it might just overwhelm you in a fortnight's time. There is no public health crisis. Forget cases, forget deaths. Right now, in my home province of Ontario, the number of people hospitalised for covid uh, in Canada's most populous province, is 175 persons. There are 350 hospitals in Ontario, so every COVID patient has two hospitals to himself. Uh, I would bet it's not so different anywhere in the Western world. Oh, 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 what about cases? Who cares? There are a lot of people with pimples on their bottoms, but if only 175 bottom-pimpled persons need to see a doctor, we don't worry about a pandemic of pimpled bottoms. In the meantime, we have massive restrictions on freedom of movement, freedom of religion, the right to work, the right to leave your home... Uh, in Victoria for more than two hours a day. If you grew up on... Uh, oh, I would also add the right to hold a funeral. You can't even bury the dead in a civilised manner. If you grew up on uh, Monty Python, you think a civil servant is like John Cleese, a boring, pedantic man in striped trousers and a bowler hat with a rolled-up umbrella. In fact, as government has expanded... The permanent bureaucracy in most Western nations has become more radical than any of the viable political choices uh, represented by the parties on Election Day. That's why whether you have a left-of-centre government or a right-of-centre government, all Western nations except Sweden have done pretty much the same thing. Uh, because the education bureaucracy is in the hands of the most radical educrats and social engineers. The environmental bureaucracy is in the hands of the most radical warmongers. Uh, that's why you can elect a populist like Trump, and three years into his administration, he discovers that they're teaching critical race theory at his nuclear labs and identity politics at his fish and game department. And so the natural inclination of these uber-radicalised, not-so-civil servants, is to advise their here-today, gone-tomorrow politicians, whether of nominal left or nominal right, that they need to institute policies that transfer even more power away from individuals and the private sector to the government and to global groupthink. Meanwhile, as I pointed out on Tucker, the families of three G7 leaders have been infected. Boris, uh, Trump, uh, Justin Trudeau's lovely wife, Sophie. Back in March, the first head of state to get it was Prince Albert of Monaco. Now, that's a minor, low-key head of state, but that's what makes him, from China's point of view, perfect. Pour encourager les autres. It's the equivalent of those Antifa mobs demonstrating outside the homes of American mayors. It's a way of saying, we know where you live, and we can get you where you live. 
Uh, and so they have managed to get this virus uh, into uh, supposedly the most secure uh, royal palaces and presidential residences uh, and and all and all uh, the homes of the people who uh, spend most of their day in rooms meeting perfect strangers, as you do if you're a prince or a president or a prime minister. Uh, so, so like Antifa, the mob is basically, uh, it's the mob on the doorstep. It's the enforcer on the doorstep. It's China saying, we can get this virus to you. And so regardless of whether they're right or left, uh, I think a lot of the leadership class is actually scared. Boris is certainly scared by what happened to him. And even if they're not scared, they're caught between the groupthink peddled by the China shills at the WHO and the social justice bureaucracy for whom a permanent emergency doesn't affect one jot or tittle their own lives uh, and their own incomes because they're essential and you're not. And all the while, Chairman Xi watches this and plots his next move. Uh, I mentioned on Rush the other day, these studies showing that getting moderate or serious COVID lowers your sperm count by 50%. Gee, is there no end uh, to the way every aspect of 2020 works for the Chicoms? Mark Stein's Last Call. Peregrine Worsthorne was my sometime colleague at the Telegraph Papers, and I rather liked him as both a columnist and as a drawling dandy of a media figure, and I would have liked it had he liked me. But he regarded me as a ghastly colonial oik whose writing was, quote, quite alien to the English ear, unquote. I'd take that from a 17th Marquis, but uh, Sir Peregrine was, genetically speaking, a Belgian, just like me. I'm semi-Belgian. But in his case, his dad had changed his sinister foreign moniker and renamed himself after a village in Lancashire. And when you have as preposterously high Tory a handle as Peregrine Worsthorne, one is obliged, I suppose, to live up to it. He queered his pitch during a live appearance on the BBC's Twee Cozy Tea Time show Nationwide after spending a long lunch, lunch being a term of art to Perry's generation of journalists, in the Fleet Street bar El Vino, and then uh, tottering off to the Beeb to find they wanted to ask him about that week's sex scandal. Uh, The Defence Minister, Lord Lambton, had been caught in what is traditionally known as a -a three-in-a-bed sex romp with a brace of prostitutes, one white, one black. The somewhat earnest interviewer asked Worsthorne what he thought the British public would make of this and Perry drawled, I don't suppose they give a... And then he uttered the F word on live TV, which people didn't do half a century ago. I believe he was the third person to use it on British telly, after the Irish poet uh, Brendan Behan, who was so drunk it was unintelligible, and the drama critic Ken Tynan, whose uh, 
utterance was certainly very intelligible. Anyway, the owner of the Telegraph, Lord Hartwell, didn't care for Worsthorn's effing and blinding, and so Perry did not succeed to the editorship of the Sunday Telegraph until his lordship was forced into selling the paper uh, to Conrad Black. Conrad promoted Sir Peregrine to editor, and all the thanks he got uh, was that uh, after Conrad's downfall, Perry gleefully told the world about how much he loathed the blacks, and he loathed me, and he especially loathed Conrad's missus, Barbara Emile, most of all. He pronounced uh, Conrad a blundering Canadian boob who, at the behest of his sinister Zionist trophy clothes horse, had turned the telegraph from a nice dull paper for bank managers into a snarling, quote, American neocon propaganda sheet full of vulgar, strident types like me. Are there still any bank managers left to buy the Telegraph every day, or have they all been relocated to the new centralised customer service centre in Wuhan? The Telegraph is a shadow of its Conradian self, as I hope Sir Peregrine came to see. He was a contrarian who uh, championed politicians well past their sell-by date. He liked Ian Smith in Rhodesia and Nixon after his fall and uh, General Pinochet in Chile. Uh, but at home, he thought Mrs Thatcher all wrong and felt there was nothing conservative about such vulgar policies as privatisation. He was, for much of his life, a uh, famous soi-disant homophobe, despite or perhaps because of having been seduced by the jazz vocalist George Melly on a chaise longue in the art classroom at his boys' school, Stowe. Mr Melly told me personally that he did not seduce Perry on the grounds that... Uh, he had been entirely unattractive as a schoolboy. At any rate, Sir Peregrine was so anti-gay on a BBC debate with the actor Ian McKellen, you'll know him from uh, the X-Men movies where he plays Magneto, uh, that after 20 minutes of Worsthorn banging on about the gays as quote-unquote them, McKellen exclaimed in exasperation, I'm one of them, and came out on live radio. But even high Tories find it a hard job to keep up. By the end, Sir Peregrine was hot for gay marriage and claimed to love political correctness as merely a modern gloss on good manners, which is preposterous. He liked David Cameron because, unlike Mrs T, Cameron was a toff, although Worsthorne failed to see that Cameron was a downwardly mobile toff uh, descending into strange oikish vowels, as we touch on a little in our summer entertainment, The Prisoner of Windsor. Curiously enough, in these last decades of a long life, Sir Peregrine found perfect bliss with the daughter of the guy in that three-in-a-bed sex romp who'd set his career back a couple of decades, uh, the delightful architectural historian Lady Lucinda Lampton. I always wanted to ask him why, as a rather snobbish fellow, he hadn't upbraided his father-in-law, Lord Lampton, not for the multiracial hooker stuff, uh, but for the fact that uh, Lord Lambton was by rights the sixth Earl of Durham, 
but upon succeeding to the title, had disclaimed the earldom, yet continued to swank around town as Lord Lambton, which is a subsidiary and courtesy title deriving only from the earldom and thus disclaimed along with it. Lord Lambton is no more a legitimate title than Count Basie. In fact, rather less, I would say. In the equivalent situation in The Prisoner of Windsor, the Earl of Burlesdon disclaims his peerage to become plain old Mr Rassendil, which is what Lambton should should have done. Lord Lambton claimed that the stress of disclaiming his earldom is what had driven him to take up A, gardening, and B, the two-girl ebony and ivory sex sessions. As I said, I would have liked to ask Sir Peregrine about why I'm, quote, quite alien to the English ear, but some phony baloney courtesy title clinger like, quote, unquote, Lord Lambton isn't. But I never got the chance, and now I'm the only bloke on the planet remotely interested in the topic. Dead at the age of 96, Sir Peregrine Worsthorne. Johnny Nash was a singer-songwriter famous for big hits from the 70s like Tears on My Pillow and I can see clearly now the rain has gone. For many years I thought from his vocal tone uh, that he was from the British West Indies but in fact he was born in Houston, Texas. He died in Houston, Texas and in between he was one of the first Americans to get interested in reggae and to go off to the Caribbean and record in reggae studios in Kingston, Jamaica and the like. Uh, But you all know those big songs, so I'd like to play something from a decade and a half earlier. This is a single I bought entirely by accident in a second-hand store because the lighting was very dim and I misread the label, uh, and it turned out to be quite a fine. Johnny Nash was born on August 19th, 1940, and on August 19th, 1956, he turned 16. And a couple of weeks after that birthday, he went into the recording studio to make his very first single of a song by Irving Reed and Bob Marcus. Uh, My friend Don Black's marvellous new book, The Sanest Guy in the Room, talks about Don's early days in the stand-up comedy business, where he was a huge flop because, as he says, he was a teenager stealing jokes from middle-aged comedians and nobody wants to hear a kid telling middle-aged man jokes. And something of the same should, in theory, apply here. This is a mature form of song, a mature genre that requires a bit of perspective on life. But the guy singing it is a fortnight past his 16th birthday. Johnny Nash, a teenager, sings the blues. No, don't play the jukebox Please don't speak her name I'll have a soda Then one more the same Oh, I've got a heartache Right down to my shoe And a teenager sings the blues Used to be her fella Loved her golly gee I had a best friend who took her love from me. Everybody knows it. It's the latest news. And a teenager sings 
first record Johnny Nash ever made, full of ache and angst and masterfully arranged by the great Don Costa for a kid who'd just turned 16. I think of all the times that she would call and I would tell her that I'm broke. And so we'd come here and we'd sit around, holding hands and sipping cherry coke. That's what happens when a teenager sings the blues. Johnny Nash, dead at the age of 80. Uh, Bob Marcos, by the way, went on to write the far more straightforwardly teenage anthem, Why Because I Love You, which, depending on when you were a Bobby Soxer mooning over the teen idol on your bedroom wall, you'll know either by Frankie Avalon or a generation later by Donny Osmond, or if you're British, you'll know it by Anthony New or if French by Dear Tragic Dalida as Bradesu Bradesu. That'll do it for today's show. Have a terrific Columbus Day and or Canadian Thanksgiving according to taste. Stay safe, stay free. Join us next time for another edition of The Mark Stein Show. The Mark Stein Show is a production of Mark Stein Enterprises and Oak Hill Media. reserved.